house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Okay. Yeah, it's right up there. Some Nazi thugs jumped him. It's a miracle he survived. I was a hell of a good artist, and now I can barely write my name. So my dolls have to tell the story. At your service, mademoiselle. I just moved in across the street. I love all the details. <gasps> Who are they? They are Nazis torturing Hoagie. Why? Because he's different. The women of Marwin protect me you are safe but toast just for you hello and welcome to the this had oscar buzz podcast the only podcast negotiating a non-exclusive contract with mr pinky with a brassiere on top <laughs> every week on this had oscar buzz we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty academy award aspirations but for some reason or another it all went wrong the Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my doll, Joe Reed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what are you, what's what's happening? I want, I want you to speak in a Baltimore accent for the entire podcast. <laughs> John Travolta's Baltimore accent. Uh, yeah, it's Kathy Bates' like Julia from, Child's uh, Beef Bourguignon. Right. <laughs> Kathy Bates is from uh, American Horror Story would be a close second, but yes. Um, I'm good. I'm fine. I am <laughs> a little slap happy, and we are talking about a movie that already makes me feel crazy this week. So, like, it's going to be... Let's descend into hell. Let's just get right <laughs> into it. Okay, so we're entering some new territory with this episode. We have decided that the class of 2018... Starts now. ...is no longer... <laughs> Off, off limits. Table. Right, yeah. It is now on the table. And as we promised in our Class of 2018 episode, our first 2018 movie is Welcome to Marwen. Welcome to Marwen. Yeah. Um, I. Which, honestly, I. Like, this obviously will be a little bit of an experiment for us. I wouldn't expect us to just, like, immediately jump into more 2018 episodes. No. But I feel like this is a safe one to. Do like we said, we promised a good title to begin with because I don't think this is really going to like make us unpack all that much of recent Oscar history right. because like this one's such a bomb. <laughs> we don't we don't sort of arbitrarily put these rules into place to uh, you know to withhold to be withholding podcast parents. We we tend to feel like these things. Um, function best we need when some limitations. marinating in the you know in the juices of time there's you know the, the, a degree of hindsight is good for a lot of these kinds of movies i feel like our sweet spot for this head oscar buzz resides in the kind of mid 90s through mid 2000s range um mm-hmm. not to say that the movies that fall outside that range lead to bad episodes because like far from it but um I just feel like in terms of like expertise and the way we can things we can glean from looking backwards, I think that is like a real sweet spot for us. And this is very recent. Um, if there, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot of 
stories about, you know, the making of Welcome to Marwin now as as much as you would in a few years, maybe when mm-hmm. <laughs> disgruntled cast members start talking or something like that. <laughs> a disgruntled Merritt Weaver. <laughs> right, exactly. There's, oh God, there's the, the cast of this movie being put to the ends that it's being put to is something we will Quite definitely truly. get into. Also, I wanted to mention before we started that when I say the title, Welcome to Marwin in my head, like when I got the opening credits of this movie as I was watching it, I absolutely 100% sing it in the cadence of Welcome to Burlesque, which both (laughs) kind of delights me, but also then it's a real quick come down to like, oh no, I'm not watching Burlesque. I'm watching Welcome to Marwin. But, like, I'm now kind of imagining, like, Cher as a plastic doll doing an opening, like, this turning this movie into a full-on musical, which honestly could have helped. It should have been. Like, maybe the Marwin sequences would make any sense with how much time we spend in them if they were musical sequences. I think they work better than that than as a, like... A like war espionage thriller where we're supposed to like care about whether the dolls make it out alive. Like it's so weird the stakes where this movie places the stakes of things. Like it on one level it appropriately places the stakes in the real world on Steve Carell's character who's dealing with PTSD and whether he can like pull his life together and all that. But like every time we cut into these like extended sequences, the animated stuff with the dolls, I'm just like that why barely reflect what's going on in the real world even metaphorically? Yeah. But like why are we playing this like we're watching the dirty dozen? Like we don't it doesn't matter if these girls can like get one over on the Nazis on a plot level, like, we get it on a metaphorical level, but, like, I don't know, sometimes the movie seemed to think, like, its audience was invested in the plot of those fantasy sequences, which is weird. Or that, like, the visual effects of it are impressive enough to be entertaining. The visual effects of that... I want to talk about the visual effects of this movie. It was... I'm... (laughs) And, you know, maybe it's just because I am me and I love actresses to point of distraction. But, like, every time I'm watching those sequences, I just want to watch the actual actresses have scenes together. I just want mm-hmm. Janelle Monet and Gwendolyn Christie and Merritt Weaver and... And now I'm forgetting her name from Baby Driver. I mean no offense. Um, what is her... Isa Gonzalez. But Diane Kruger, who never gets to be a real person, which maybe that's better for Diane Kruger... Yeah, it took me a second uh, for them to like actually like give you a good close up on. Um, it's like Helga the Shrew, Witch Deja Thoris, with blue hair, right? Deja Thoris, which I think is actually like a kind of a cool name. Um, but once they like closed up on her face, I was just like, oh god, it's Diane Kruger. But like, yeah, I want to see all of these actresses actually. Like, I was my hope after watching the trailer for Welcome to Marwin and knowing that the original title for this film was The Women of Marwin, um, which reminds me always of that episode of The West Wing called The Women of Kumar, where CJ discovers that they're they're beating the women in um, Kumar. They're beating the women, Nancy. Anyway, uh, 
my hope was that all these women would like get together in the real world and like pool their resources to help uh, Mark Hogan camp. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. and you get a little bit, but like the most you get from that is like Merritt Weaver and Leslie Mann like meet and have like a kind of not quite tetchy, but sort of just like you can tell that there's a little bit of friction between them because they both sort of have feelings for Mark in weird ways. Um, but they never team up in real life. And I'm just like, isn't the whole point of... Most of them are only, like, in their corporeal form in, like, one scene of the movie? Yes. Like, Janelle Monae, Gwendolyn Chrisley, um, Asa Gonzalez is in just, like, maybe two scenes. Yeah, I just... Speaking of actresses... Speaking of actresses... Can I say yes. what I think of when I say the title, Welcome to Marwin yes, in please. my head? yes. I always think of Carol Channing as Marlena Dietrich <laughs> saying Moena. <laughs> now I'm thinking, now you've got me Do thinking. Do you desire Moena Dietrich? <laughs> now you've got me thinking of the priest in The Princess Bride where he goes, Mawen. Love <laughs> and Mawen. Mawen is what brings us together today. For this episode, very, very true. It does. We've, we've, we, we've really started getting in on the movie before we do the sixty-second plot description. We've, we've almost consistently been pushing the the plot description later and later into the episode, and part of it is um, fear. I feel like I don't relish <laughs> having to sum up this movie in sixty seconds, especially well because you have two congruent plot lines basically going on. You have the real world with Steve Carell and then you have the fake Marwin world that like have their own plots that like yes kind of represent each other and what's going on with Mark Hogan Camp. Yeah. But also like it feels like it's its own movie. Yes. It does. <sighs> cool. Cool. Very cool. Cool, cool. Did you watch any so of um the the documentary Marwin Call before I I have not seen Marwin Call. It's have not you seen it's it? not super available. I I mean this is the true the the truth I've of the matter margin is call, I could have not seen I could Marwin have paid four dollars to rent it and didn't. So um but I watched some like trailers and clips on YouTube and stuff like that. And there's mm-hmm. some certain interesting things. Uh I think the the primary one being that uh, Mark's real life Mark's alcoholism is a huge factor in the documentary, mm-hmm. and it's only really sort of like addressed sideways wise in this movie. Yeah, which is interesting. Because he makes a big deal of he's not ever since he has this accident that he's abused from. He hasn't drank since, but like it, the movie just makes it seem like he was just out to a bar, not that he was some alcoholic. So it's this weird, yes. like, significance placed upon And him. then you get to that part, they get to the end, and you get the postscript where it says, Mark hasn't touched alcohol since the incident. And it's like, by not actually foregrounding the idea that Mark was an alcoholic and Mark's drinking problem existed separate from the night of this attack focusing on his drinking is feels very victim blamey in the context of this movie yeah. where it's just like oh sorry now he can't drink anymore because he got attacked by five nazis like all right um 
and I think it just does a disservice in perhaps a, an effort to be kinder to the character or just like streamline his story mm-hmm. or something like that. It re- like in that case, just like don't There's put that. There's a lot of ableism there. issues in this movie. It's I mean I yeah. gotta say I think they are not in the top five of problems with this movie but like yeah i think you're probably right i mean there's problems everywhere yeah <laughs> maybe what even would be the top five yeah um i mean the first is probably steve carell but we're once again we are getting into it we are um I'm... too quickly joseph yeah let's rip off the band-aid yeah. it is your turn to do a 60 second plot description right. for welcome to Marwin. I know you're not ready no i'll never be ready. ready yeah i will give you a little bit of time to like prime this up a little bit once again we are here to discuss welcome to marwin uh directed and written by robert zemeckis also co-written by carolyn thompson again loosely based on the documentary marwin call and the work of uh mark Hogenkamp, played by steve steve carell excuse me uh it also stars leslie mann merritt weaver Diane Kruger, Janelle Monet, Gwendolyn Christie. It opened the week before Christmas of 2018. Yeah, it did. That is Welcome to Marwin. It did. Joseph. Yes. Are you ready? Sure. Joseph Reed, yes. your 60-second plot description for Welcome to Marwin starts now. Okay, so show a little more, show a little less, add some recreations of uh, World War II battle scenes, welcome to burlesque. Um, So, Steve Carell plays Mark Hogenkamp, who is a man who has previously, to the start of the movie, been attacked by five uh, sort of neo-Nazi types at a bar for wearing, uh, for admitting that he wears women's shoes. And uh, so, to deal with the PTSD, he has created this um, sort of sick one six size uh, battle scenes of this town called Marwin in Belgium, uh, and it's populated by this series of women in his life who, in his fantasy sequences, uh, they they help him fight back against these Nazis who are the people who attacked him, and he's got to decide whether he's going to show up to court to uh, help them get seconds. a bad sentence, and at the same time, he falls in love with Leslie Mann, who is Nicole, who is his across-the-street neighbor, and he's battling with his um, PTSD, and... And that's time! Yeah, I mean... That's mostly the movie. I mean, yeah, that's that's the general gist of the movie. Did I waste like, time with my silly little burlesque gambit? Yeah, yeah, I did. And you know no, what? I don't it was, regret it. Was a beautiful it. thing. Thank you. Really, you kind of cut out all of the parts of this movie that are mostly unnecessary, which is the plot of Marwin. Right. Which is like, I probably could not tell you what it is right now, and oh. I watched this movie less than 12 hours. I knew I was not going to get into the weeds of Deja Thoris and the, the the Belgian witch who's trying to get him to take too many of his... Is she called Deja Thoris because he's taking Thorazine? Is Thorazine like a thing? I guess, but why is she represented by a woman? Why is she represented like, by a woman who is based some... on no one? Yes, because all of these women are... All of the women of Marwin are based on women in his actual life. Or women he watches and... in porn, which, by the way, we'll revisit that. Yes, we will revisit that, including also Leslie Mann, who it's like he literally sees her and then becomes obsessed with her and puts her in the town. Uh-huh. We will get into that. Um, but why, it made me think the whole time that there was going to be some reveal that there was some woman that scorned him, right. possibly, that he's conflated with his medication. And I'm glad that um, that's not the case, I guess. 
because itself it's, as well, but it's so confusing. It, it is confusing, and it makes you... It sort of has you on tenterhooks waiting for a reveal that's never going to come. And if if I knew not to be expecting anything, I might have been able to enjoy, you know, Diane Kruger's sort of, like, motion capture performance or something. Um, yeah. But it's also just this idea of, like, oh, so... She represents the part of him that wants to kill himself. And her whole thing is, like, just trying to convince him to, like... Or to just, like, disappear into his, like, medication. Like, the idea that, like, she represents... Med- I, I get very, very nervous every any time a message of a work of fiction seems to be, stop taking your medication... Yeah. I hate that. I super hate that. Don't like that at or, all. Or, like, feel shame about some type of medication that might be an antidepressant or an antipsychotic. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, it's... I I always... That's the point where I always try want to, like, ask for the credentials of everybody who worked on this movie. And it's just like, do you have a medical degree? Do you have a degree in, you know, pharmacology or in trauma anything like no you don't so like let's it's this weird like trying to make it this warm and cozy thing that robert zemeckis is doing to this movie that like i prescribe most of these problems with this movie to what robert zemeckis is doing because it's like you could understand the type of like psychosis that's going on with this character in when you see it in his own words or treated with some degree of sensitivity in a documentary that because it's made into this warm and fuzzy story that things get creepy and offensive sometimes borderline offensive sometimes outwardly so that it's just like it's not exactly how things are like I had a major problem with how and some of this is the performance of Steve Carell how creepy he was towards Leslie Mann's Nicole in the way that the movie kind of told it whereas you could just see it being a less offensive truth that like yes of what that relationship really was though she, I am already guessing, is some type of composite character. Right. Or, like, an invention. Because Marwin Call is supposed to be Mark, Wendy, and, Colleen. and then Colleen yes. is the real name of the character, and she's a Nicole. Yes. Agreed. So I, I wanna, wonder if that was fake. I want to put a pin in Mark and Nicole for a second, because you mentioned Zemeckis, mm-hmm. and I, I want to address... Uh, the central question to that I wrote down was my second note to this movie, which was what broke Robert Zemeckis in his career? Because I'm looking back at his directorial uh, list on IMDb and like mm-hmm. his mid to late eighties into the early nineties is like, his at least late eighties are unimpeachable where he goes from romancing the stone in 84 back to the future 85, which is like, you know, the blank check of all blank checks to quote, a uh, a podcast. We all very much love, uh, who weekly. No, I'm kidding. It's, uh, <laughs> we love them both. We love them um, both. And then who framed Roger rabbit in 88. And then he does both of the sequels to back to the future in 89 and 90 death becomes her in 92, which I think at the time was a little bit less maybe celebrated. 
like it got it was successful but also i feel like there was a that was during that like weird backlash to comedy streep which is a weird thing yeah. we should talk about when we talk about streep and again. like camp wasn't cool at the time right and then his next movie after that is forrest gump which we may not think is a great movie but like was a massive success both financially and then awards wise follows that up with contact which i love which might be my favorite robert mm-hmm. zemeckis movie um cable tv staple contact i've watched the last the end of contact about a hundred times and maybe the beginning of contact 25 because like i only ever see it when it's on cable and i'll just like pick it up halfway through mm-hmm. and then 2000 like a kind of fascinating double play of what lies beneath which he made while he was waiting for tom hanks to get skinny um mm-hmm. to finish castaway and then nothing for four years, and then it's the Polar Express. And then, and then it's just like the circling the drain. And it's just like he makes like hardly that's from that point in his career, I would argue that he makes two more regular movies for his entire rest of his career, which are mm-hmm. Flight and Allied, which are like mixed bags. Both of them. Both of them have, like, things to recommend it, especially the plane crash scene in Flight, I think, is, like, super harrowing and, like, an incredibly filmed and, like, has a really great eye for Mm -hmm. visuals. Um, Denzel's incredible. Denzel's incredible, but, like, all the rest of that script is really, really corny and sort of um, convenient. And, uh, but, like, it's, he does Polar Express in 04, Beowulf in 07, that horrifying <laughs> Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey in 2009. I'm kind of cool with that Christmas Carol, to be honest. Yeah. Of all of his animated movies, that's the one that I'm like, this is fine. All right. Um, the Walk in 2015, which is straight up hilarious. Zewalk. Zewalk. And that's just when he's also decided, <laughs> I'm just going to start filming uh, adaptations of documentaries in ways that are like impossible to enjoy, which is The Walk and then Welcome to Marwin. And I just... I don't quite get... Maybe, like, making Castaway was really hard in terms of, like, elements that he couldn't control, like, um, waiting for an actor to lose weight so he can be emaciated, or, like, dealing Mm -hmm. with uh, tropical um, island locations or whatever, that he just decided he was going to control everything about the environment of a movie which is really interesting when you think about marwin because like Mm -hmm. this is this guy essentially making like you know not quite dioramas but like if we think the back his backyard is a shoebox then yeah dioramas um he's well but he's also like a technology guy right because all of these movies maybe with the largest exception being castaway because even allied has some like pretty like big leaps that it's trying to do with visual effects they're all like lean into a like some type of technological aspect that involves a lot of cgi um even down to like what lies beneath is sort of like that what lies yeah, beneath. Yeah. forrest gump is that obviously like forrest gump actually like t- was a pioneer of uh, the technology using old footage. My favorite thing um, about Forrest Gump in that respect is they use all of this technology in order to like have 
John F. Kennedy, you know, congr- you know, shake Forrest's hand. He says he's got a page. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And I, it, it was so funny to me that they foregrounded the fucking feather so much. And it's just like, yeah, Jesus you Christ. can create a feather with your little computer and have it float around. I'm not super impressed. Like... <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that was like the original like American Beauty plastic bag where like everybody makes fun of the American Beauty plastic bag and probably with, you know, good reason. But nobody makes fun of the exact same goddamn conceit in Forrest Gump, which is just sort of like, oh, he's a feather floating in the breeze of American history. Got it. Thanks. Like, cool metaphor. <laughs> uh, Forrest Gump is one of those movies that I would hate all that much more if I didn't know for sure that my parents loved it. And I don't want to, like... It's sort of like OK Boomer is the same thing, where it's just like, I don't want to go too far down the road of OK Boomer because, like, I just love my parents too much to, like, really, really get down into the dirt of just, like... But, like, there are... In fairness, your parents are lovely. Thank you, Chris. Um, That's very nice of you to say. I'll pass that along to them. Um, They love you as well. And, um... But, like, Forrest Gump... I love reading any assessment of Forrest Gump because it always winds up into this just like it adds up to just this horrible indictment of the baby boomer generation and the sort of solipsism of that generation and the, you know, promise betrayed of, you know, the hippies and all that sort of stuff. And just the the pro-establishment stance of Forrest Gump and the anti- Mm -hmm any kind of action uh, stance of Forrest Gump, it's like, it very, like, it's very easy to give that movie a reading as, like, an evil, as a force for evil in this world, and <laughs> it's, I never get, I never get sick of people dunking on Forrest Gump, because it doesn't feel like picking on just a cheesy movie for being cheesy, or for being, you know, mainstream, or for being, you know, a little innocent or whatever. Just like, no, there's insidiousness in Forrest Gump that does not sleep, and I will, you know, I'm here for it. There's a certain degree to Forrest Gump that, like, I, like, I kind of like people dunking on it, but I also love when people, like, love Forrest Gump, too, because, like, Forrest Gump, to me, is, like, such like I hate when people are like it's a product of its time it's a product of its time but like in a different way Forrest Gump is very much like the most 90s movie ever in terms of like what the sentiment behind it is like the kind of excess that goes into that movie both emotionally and like on a production value side yeah. I mean I love Tom Hanks so much like I in that grew movie? up with Tom Hanks uh n- no no. Um, but, like, I don't know. I guess it's just such, even though I don't, that's not, like, the performance I think of when I think of Tom Hanks or anywhere close to it. It's just, like, a cultural staple in a way that, yeah. like, I, I can at least, I, I guess what I'm saying is I write Forrest Gump off, so it's, like, it's hard for me to really have. Sure, Totally. A strong opinion about it. It's just, I, I, to bring it back to Marwin, um, it's watching a movie like Welcome to Marwin, knowing that it's Robert Zemeckis, and like, anytime I take a break to realize that like, oh, this is the guy who directed Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future and Death Becomes Her and Contact and Castaway, and I'm just like, I love all of those movies so much. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And I hate this one that I'm watching so much. And and I feel like I'm not even watching this movie and hating it and being like, well, he'll get the next one. Because I just have no confidence anymore that he'll get the next one. But he keeps being predicted. It Like, he's the first name to show up on these long-term predictions. The Walk had it. Allied had it. Because I, and it makes no sense anymore. But it's it's the thing we always say though, which is when people are just like that had Oscar buzz, and it's just like if you've won an Academy Award for Best Director, it is really really not easy to win an Academy Award for Best Director and for Best Picture, and it means that forevermore we will give your movie the benefit of the doubt, like unless it's mm-hmm. fully like I think Beowulf didn't really have real. No, that's not even true. There was even like a year no. ahead and just be like, maybe Beowulf is like the the holy grail of mocap movies and it'll do it. And mm-hmm. yeah. And it was supposed to be for adults. It was supposed to be sexy and violent. And yeah. Like, <laughs> but like I look at like, so he's in post-production on The Witches per uh, IMDb with Anne Hathaway and Stanley Tucci. And here I am being a hypocrite because I am absolutely willing to give that movie the benefit <laughs> sure. of the doubt. Sure, it's Anne Hathaway Even though, like, stepping. The original yeah. is perfect. It is a classic. I was a. I grew up. Speaking of things, I grew up on. I grew up on Roald Dahl. I will always at least show up for that. And also, Anne Hathaway is playing the High Witch. And like, I'm sorry, Anne Hathaway. Anybody who has seen Serenity knows that she is the great camp actress of our time. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. She's going to be so much fun. I am super, super excited for October of next year, which is when this movie comes out. And But yeah, you're right. Totally, like, I'm Charlie Brown and Robert Zemeckis is Lucy just holding that football, just being like, come on, buddy, we can do this. And ready to yank it away at any moment. But like, of course. I'm there for it. Yeah. Total sucker. We are starting to get, like, notably burned, because, like, even though Marwin was predicted long into last year's season... Yeah. Until maybe, like, it was, the festivals were closed a little well, bit. Well, it was one of those, like, oh, what are what are the last few movies that no one has seen of the mm-hmm. season? And Marwin was, if not the last one, like, almost. There's always that potential for, like, what is... What are the movies that could show up at AFI because they're the last ones? Yeah. And then when they don't, that's when something like Marwin will fall off of a lot of people's predictions. Right. Because why are they so afraid but, of letting anybody see it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cats. I mean, it had a trailer fairly, fairly early, too. And that's where I think those of us who were like, no, oh, un- Uncanny Valley, the trailer. Yeah, for sure. Everybody was so repulsed by that trailer. And I remember being like a slight outlier where I was just like, at least it's something we've never seen before. Where I'm just like, yeah, it's doing a thing. It's doing definitely like, it doing something. It looks terrible, but you can't say that it's not doing a thing. Yeah, but in because everybody's a doll, right? But like, even the environments look bad. Yeah, like I would probably argue that Beowulf looks better than <laughs> Marwin does. So when we were when I veered us off into Zemeckis land, we were starting to broach the subject of. Leslie Mann's character, Nicole, who is the across-the-street neighbor who finds herself sort of fascinated with Mark and um, his, you know, little diorama project in the backyard, and of course has a, like, problematic husband, which, you know, 
going back to fried green tomatoes at the very least. Um, I don't know why that's my touchstone for problematic husband, but it's totally true. Um, trying to cock block the true love of Iggy and Ruth in that movie, and I will never forgive Frank Bennett for that, and he deserved to die and get cooked up into barbecue sauce. So, <laughs> secrets, secrets in the sauce. In the sauce. Thank you, Sipsy. Um, I love that movie. I love, I love fried green tomatoes, and I'm happy that Jessica Tandy got nominated for that. But I'm also kind of sad because now we can't do this head Oscar buzz episode on fried green tomatoes, and it would be wonderful. Um. Where was I? Leslie Mann. So, A, I don't think Leslie Mann is very good in this movie. Also, by the way, 40-year-old virgin um, reunion of Steve Carell and Leslie Mann from the drunken, horrible, (laughs) vomity car ride It's a real bummer that Leslie Mann isn't good in this. First of all, let's be clear. She has it in her to be good in things. Justice for Leslie Mann. She's not super consistent as an actress, I will say, but when she's on it, when she's when she nails it, she's really good. Mm-hmm. And this is just not well, the case. And sometimes she's just cast wrong. Like she's yeah. fatally cast wrong in this movie. Yes. Like I don't yes, understand sort of. why it's her. Especially like this is the year of blockers, whereas like that's perfect casting. She's great. It's a wonderful performance. She's great in blockers. Love her in blockers. Where Love it's blockers. like it's two different types of sincere people. And like Welcome Tomorrow when is the type of sincerity that Leslie Mann is not good at. And is not a Which is naive sincerity? Uh, I mean, I guess it's uncomplicated sincerity. Yeah, that's probably a better way of Whereas, putting like, it. Whereas, like, Blockers is, like, it's sincere because she has so many feelings that she can't not be sincere. And, like, it, like there's a certain intensity to the level Yeah, that I guess that's probably the better word for, like, what Leslie Mann is good at. But, like, she gets introduced, and we know she's supposed to be the love interest because like we've seen a movie before but also like i mean we've like this particular movie we've seen like trailers and stuff like that and so we know where this is going but like i i don't like that relationship between them at all at any point i think initially i'm sort of you know have a kind of vestigial protection instinct for him where it's just like don't fall for this woman she's not entirely available it's not great for you in your current sort of like emotional state but then like once they become friends and she sort of falls into his pattern of um objectifying all his female friends for both good and bad reasons like i think i think there are certain ways where he objectifies the f- women in his life that are complementary to them. Like, it's not all bad that he creates these dolls with their personalities because, like, it is a little yeah. bit, you know, it's... Like, most of them, it's acknowledging, like, their power and, like, how they are strong forces in his life right. for, like, good right. and, like, the embodiment of, like, I guess his... Or, or like they're examples for him to be right 
But then at the same time, it's like they're never people. They're never people. So it's like they're still just an objectification. And also, like, he's having their tops come off in, like, funny ways and whatever. Like, funny, I'm putting in scare mm-hmm. quotes. And, like, that to me, that was the p- part that really made me want to watch Marwan Call. And I probably should have before I start spouting off. But, like, that felt like, oh, that was the case in real life. That was, you know, that he would film these scenes and sometimes the dolls had their tops off in this sort of just, like, Dirty Dozen era exploitation, you know, that's what movies were like back then or whatever. And they didn't want to violate that aspect of the realness of it for the sake of this movie. But but it just feels like it's definitely creepier than what the truth because is. Because the, tr- the tone of the movie, it still is, it's a Zemeckis movie, so the tone of the movie only allows itself to go so dark, and because it doesn't get dark enough all of this kind of stuff plays as cutesy or um like almost twee and it's just like i don't love the idea of and it just makes it it makes it creepy and it makes mark the character creepy that he's got all these women in his life who he's like photographing the dolls with their tops off and like there's the point where Merritt Weaver's character who plays Roberta at some point we should run down like who all these women are um and what their characters are but so she plays Roberta who is works at the hobby shop where he goes and buys his you know his toys and his models and stuff for his village and she stops by and she sees that he's photographing another sort of fantasy scene and it's one where she's you know fighting against the nazis and and firing back at them but like her top's been ripped open and she just goes like mark why is my top off and it's just like and you can tell that this happened before and she's like exasperated but not angry and she's like infinitely patient because like that's the one common theme of all of the women in his life is that they are infinitely patient and infinitely able Mm -hmm. to sort of like accommodate his emotional distress in a way that is great for him but also makes me wonder like i constantly was wondering what is roberta's life when she leaves mark's presence like clearly she has a bit of a crush on him she won or not quite a crush but like she's always trying to get him to like come to her mom's house on sunday for dinner or like maybe we'll go out Mm -hmm. for dinner so like there's some sort of interest she places herself as like some type of emotional caregiver for him yeah but I always am just like you're you're too smart to like be fully hung up on this guy. So like, what is the rest of your life? And we never really Isn't see that it. Just because she's ca- it's Merritt yes. Weaver cast in the role, though, because like on the page, the way this character is written, yeah, do we know that about her? You're probably right, and I think that's and you know I'm never one to say don't cast Merritt Weaver, but if you're going to cast Merritt Weaver, know that we are going to read all of this stuff into her, and then, like, now you gotta put your money where your mouth is with her. Mm-hmm. She's the most interesting, I think, of all of the, this sort of coterie of um, women who are there to protect Mark, or Hoagie, I guess, is his character inside the the fantasy sequences. We also have Janelle Monet as Julie, who is helping him in his physical therapy um, and his rehab, and we see, you're right, like, a scene of her talking about how you gotta love mm-hmm. the pain and this whole kind of thing. And this movie coming only a year or two removed from the year where she was in Moonlight and... Um, 
hidden figures. And hidden figures, which is, like, one of the great, just, like, oh, like, I'm sure she got cast in so many things from that. But it's just, like, we've, now we've had the thing where Janelle Monae is only in, like, a scene or two and she's captivating. And it's just, like, now we kind of demand to see more of her. And that we don't mm-hmm. get to see more of her um, is a problem. As I mentioned, Isa Gonzalez plays uh, this... Is she a waitress at the bar, right, where he works? Yes, they both work at, like, a bar restaurant, and they work in the kitchen. And it's just, like, this classic sitcom, like, they're co-workers, and they're chit-chatting, and she's, you know... Making meatballs. Yeah, 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 exactly. But, like, that's the extent of it. Gwendolyn Christie plays his... the woman who brings him his painkillers once a month, right? She plays Svetlana, the Soviet love hammer, basically. <laughs> it's the most... She's like the woman in The Sopranos with the with the one leg that Tony has sex with that was like the last straw for Carmela. do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Except Gwendolyn Christie shows up and, like, beats him with the other leg. Like, <laughs> right. Beats us, at least. Right. Um... It's it's very heavy. And she never comes back. Like, does she come back? Is she sitting in the courtroom at that one point? I can't remember. I don't think so. Like, it's just the one scene. It's crazy. They had her for a day. And then the other woman in this, in the Marwin sequences, is Suzette, who, and you kept being like, where, who was this woman? And we find out that this woman is Mark's preferred porno actress, who has decided to put in this movie. And again... The t- who is played by Zumekis's wife. Yeah, also that. Very, very much also that. Um, but it's just, like, in the context of the sort of, like, the predominantly light tone of this movie. Like, even when this movie is dealing with, like, heavy PTSD issues and whatever, we're still watching cartoon Ken dolls of Nazis, like, running around or whatever. So it's never that dark. It's always a, It's always... Light, And because of that... I'm glad you brought it back to that, because that is one of the things that makes this movie so absolutely bizarre and messy when you're watching it. It's like, what's the tone of this? Who is supposed to be the audience for this movie? And maybe part of the problem is with how this movie was promoted, in that it was like... It seemed like it was supposed to be a movie for families to go see... At Christmas yeah, time. Yeah, that, 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 that shouldn't and, be. And, like, it's... Maybe that explains some of the, like, tweeness of the movie or, like, the sentimentalism in, like, the real-life sequences. But, like, it's a strangely violent movie. It's But very it's cartoony. Like, the violence... yeah, politics. Yes. But, yeah, like, in, injecting this, like, you know, porn actress, once again... Like, the implications of that throughout, you know, as it sort of courses through the other women, are just like, oh, these are all women who he's just, you know, he might not watch them all in pornos, but they are all essentially just, like, objects in his life. And mm-hmm. that the, and that Suzette brings him, you know, whatever kind of gratification he gets from watching a porno... Like, that's what Merritt Weaver gives him in a different, you know what I mean? Like, she, too, yeah. serves, like, a single purpose for him, as does Janelle Monet, as does Gwendolyn Christie. And it's, like... And because there's no, like, notes of darkness or any, like, adult perspective on any of this, it's just plain creepy. 
And there's a way that he could have... Uncomplicated and uninteresting. Right. And if he would have done it... When it could be. And if he had done it in a more complicated way, you can tell a story of, you know, it takes a village kind of a thing, or just sort of just like other people in their capacity to like Janelle Monet's not doing this out of the goodness of her heart entirely. She's a social worker. Um, she's mm-hmm. a, she's, you know, she has her job. Right. And, but also she does her job in a very, you know, caring and personal and warm way that makes her into somebody, into a figure of inspiration for Mark. And so there's a way to, to do this movie where like, that's the case for everybody. And the story is, all this this group of women form this like you know that like what in Angels in America when Harper says like the web of souls or whatever I always feel like mm-hmm. there's like they form this like interconnected like series of of fingertips or whatever right that like that catch him that are a net that catches him and just like that's mm-hmm. the story I wanted to be told but to tell that story you would really have to this would have to be the women of Marwin like you would have to tell that story and we don't get that story yeah he wouldn't be the protagonist right and so we get the story where Mark Hogan Camp is the protagonist the main character the one we spend a grand majority of time with and then we have this the essential conflict then becomes Mark Hogan Camp versus you know Deja Thoris and that is infinitely less interesting to me and part of that is and i want you to sort of kick this off um part of that is i don't think steve carell is very good in this movie okay we're getting there i think he's actively bad i think even with all the things we've said i think he's the biggest problem with this movie uh talk about people who are also not great with playing a certain type of sincere character it's like yeah the choices that he makes in this movie, his acting choices, are so overly sentimental to the point that they just read as creepy in a way that this movie does not intend. Yes, I think that's right. And Or that the movie now has to, like, try to accommodate. And mm-hmm. it's... And, like, the performance just seems to, like, really hit hard on, like, constantly reminding us what his limitations are in a way that feels, I think, condescending. Yeah. Like, Carell is constantly telling us what a simple person he's playing. Um, Yeah, I thought it was... And, like, Steve Carell is kind of an interesting performer in terms of, like, people on the spectrum of thinking he is absolutely wonderful and people who think he's absolutely terrible. I like Steve Carell quite a bit. And like, this is like the worst thing I've ever seen him do. My opinion on Steve Carell is not too terribly unique from, I think what most of us feel about Steve Carell, which is, I think he's a great, he's a great comedic talent. And I think he's a great talent overall. And, but I don't feel like he's been well served by the roles he's been cast in, like, the grand majority of the time. Whereas we go back through, mm-hmm. and it's like, like, Vice, whatever. I actually thought he was pretty okay as Rumsfeld. Um, Beautiful Boy, I don't know if that's necessarily bad casting, but, like, that doesn't work out for him. But, like, I'm thinking of stuff like Freeheld or Foxcatcher or the big short Olive. I was going to ask you what you think about that Foxcatcher nomination. Right, right. He gets the Oscar nomination for Foxcatcher. And all of these movies that ask him to play these sort of just like grotesque sort of characters in one way or another, these sort of like big, 
you know, they all, they're big and they're ticky and whatever, and it really gives him too much leash to work with, I feel like. I still think his best performance in film, like, I don't want to just be like Steve Carell only do comedies challenge, but like, I, I, he's definitely been better in pure comedies and things like the 40-year-old version, or like Anchorman, he's hilarious in Anchorman, but like, that's a supporting role and whatever, and he should be able to do leads. But I think the greatest the greatest roles for him and the greatest performances, I still think his greatest film performance is Little Miss Sunshine. And it's because it harnesses a a bit of darkness from him, but doesn't create this sort of like caricature of him. He's like he's the most kind of subtle character in that movie, with the exception of Tony Collette's character, who is just like all subtle. But um he plays that character underplays that character really really well and still gives you a really full portrait of him i also think he's actually really good in a movie like hope springs Hope Springs, where he plays the marriage counselor sort of stuck in the middle of streep and Tommy lee jones but that's a movie where like the you know the the better part of valor is stepping back and letting streep and Tommy lee jones sort of like do their thing but like I don't know. I think he's been bad in more movies than he's been good, and I hate that because I do think he's incredibly talented. I think it's the... I I mean, I think it's probably more balanced than he's been bad in things, in my opinion. The thing with Steve Carell is I appreciate him when it seems like a director is like, can you just, like, be a person? Like, just be a regular person who doesn't have to make these huge like when you can feel him leaning into a choice or like leaning into a big gesture yeah. is when it's usually bad but that's not or it's like proportional to what the movie is doing because like obviously obviously he's doing huge things in anchorman but that's what that movie is but like he doesn't always seem to align with, like, tonally what's going on, like, the size of the choices, which, like, I do think he's good in Beautiful Boy, even though the movie serves, like, nothing for him. But, like, that's a good example of that, I think. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I'm I'm trying to think of, like, who is the actor that the people who cast him in these things think he is or want him to be? And I wonder if... Because sometimes it seems like he gets cast in things and people want him to be Bill Murray. And sometimes he gets cast in things... Like, I mean, just, like, really bad, junky mainstream stuff, like um, uh, Dinner for Schmucks or mm-hmm. um, that Burt Wonderstone movie. And it's just like, well, he's not Will Ferrell. Like, don't don't cast him as if he's Will Ferrell. But, like, I don't know if we've landed on, like, the Steve Carell sweet spot. And I think the problem the is... The person that I think they want to cast in Marwin that I've seen in other movies from... Uh, Steve Carell before I think they want him to be Jimmy Stewart oh um, yeah where he's like a very likable like sweet person who can play like yeah things that are less becoming about somebody like objectifying women um and we can just accept it yeah I think that's probably true and my my worry is that they people like nobody else thinks that this is a problem for his career that like that's just like oh like he sees look at all the roles he's getting and he's getting you know oscar nominations and and this kind of thing but it's like i 
like four times out of five, he will take these roles that are like the free held thing is is truly. Horrifying. I never saw free held. He plays the lawyer. I will eventually have, and to. it's just like you are going to be a very loud and obnoxious lawyer, and it's like fine, and like sometimes that works. I think it works when he's playing Bobby Riggs in Battle of the Sexes, even though like Emma Stone is by far the more interesting part of that movie. I think if you've ever seen Bobby Riggs get interviewed for anything or like footage of him from that time. Like, I think Carell actually does a really good job of it. Not enough to, like, earn that, like, SAG nomination that we all were so surprised by. But, um... I mean, part of what works in his performance is that it's, like, a duet with what Emma Stone is mm -hmm. doing and that they work so well in tandem opposite each other. Yeah, I just think more often than not, in movies like Foxcatcher in the Big Short, he's, like, he gets shown up by people in his own movie... Where like Foxcatcher, I don't think he's bad in Foxcatcher. I like Foxcatcher. I a lot. I was not dialed into the the frequency that he was dialed into on that. I have to say, I liked. He's not uh, anywhere near like the performance. I I think you're right that he is outacted by other people in that movie. Like he's not, you know, he's the person that has the nose. He's playing the villain and the person with. He's sort of like you real know. life grew weirdly like yeah but like that's a weird choice <laughs> that's a weird choice for that movie for Foxcatcher, for this like subdued um sort of contemplative almost movie where like that's not the movie that ruffalo and even channing tatum who like sometimes is playing scenes big in that movie um Foxcatcher is a movie I should probably watch again because I've only seen it the once and I like it a lot do you see I'm I was I was yeah. pretty mixed on it I like Bennett Miller movies. Um, recent say. guest Katie Rich, famously, that was her number one movie of that year, which I remember listening to her on Little Goldman having to defend it, and I uh, was very proud of her <laughs> for defending it so ably, even though I did not care for it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I want Steve. Katie's not wrong. No, Katie's always right. It's not my number in one. Every, like in every, uh, it's a good movie. All right, fine. I will allow that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking of other other good, bad Steve Carell performances. What did you think of him in The Way, Way Back? Uh, I mean, I don't remember much of that movie, even though it's like that movie is trying to be Little Miss Sunshine, and it reunites him with Tony Collette, and like he's playing the jerk in that movie. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, like... That movie, like, tries to trick you into being, like, oh, Steve Carell, but then really the one you fall in love with is Sam Rockwell. Yes, you do. I don't know. We could talk about that movie sometime. We could. We could also but, like, talk... That movie is not at all fresh in my memory. We could also... T which is why, like, whenever we've done... It always shows up when we talk about AARP movies for grown-ups. And yeah. it's like, how did, how did this movie impress you guys that right, much? Right, right. Um, another movie we could talk about on this podcast is Last Flag Flying, the Richard Linkletter oh, movie, man. where he plays the father of the, uh, his son was killed in combat, and they have to go recover his corpse? Um, or no, they're looking to bury, I don't know, there's the whole thing. And he's, yeah. I mean, I think... He's really good in that. Do you think so? Okay. I thought he was good. I mean, the movie's kind of a nothing movie to me. Yeah, it's not a great um, movie. Lawrence Fishburne's really good, and Brian Cranston is actively terrible. Brian Cranston is really, really... He's playing it up in a way that, like, um, Carell sometimes does in movies like The Big Short. Um, he's playing it up in a way that's unfair to his scene partners, I would argue. Yeah, all right. I might... Uh, yeah, I won't argue that. 
what does he have coming up, Carell? He's in post-production. Another uh, Minion movie. Always going to be making those Minion dollars. Steve Carell, he can... And I guess a second season of The Morning Show. Right, that's another movie. That's another thing where um, I haven't started watching that show yet, but all I'm hearing from the yeah, reviews is that like he's the least, he's the worst part of that show, or like his character is the character that like nobody enjoys when the show sort of focuses on him. And a lot of people have I've seen miscast, you know, thrown about in relation to him in that show. So I don't know. He's in the upcoming John Stewart movie, Daily Show Reunion, um, about a Democrat strategist helps a retired veteran run for mayor in a small conservative Midwest town. What the fuck? We do not need this in the year of Mayor Pete. <laughs> um, God, <laughs> the degree to which some people look to John Stewart as like, when will our Lord and Savior return to us? Yeah, is really really um, irks me. And if he comes back... Rosewater's a movie we could talk about. Rosewater was one of the first... Um, I think it was the first TIFF movie that I got a press uh, press ticket to the premiere for, that they really wanted me to write about um, Rosewater, which I thought was like... I think at the time I was like, this movie is decidedly fine, and I haven't thought about it once since I saw that movie. The, like, absolute... like. All due respect to the subject and to Jon Stewart himself, but, like, the absolute, like, like degree of certainty that that was on, like, everybody's predictions before they saw that movie simply because it was directed by Jon Stewart, who is not a filmmaker, right, right. like, speaks exactly to what you're saying of the like when will our lord and savior return. But like speaking to the the Pied Piperness of John Stewart, the cast of this movie is so chaotic. Um it is called Irresistible. It is includes Steve Carell who I'm assuming plays the the titular veteran running for uh mayor of a small midwestern town. Chris Cooper, uh Oscar-worthy co-star of Little Women is in this movie. Topher Grace, Rose Byrne, Mackenzie Davis, Natasha Leone. First of all, get rid of everything else about this movie and make a movie about Mackenzie Davis, Rose Byrne, and Natasha Leone doing literally anything. And I will be there. Absolutely. 100%. And then, like, Topher Grace, Deborah Messing, who is just like, what is... I, 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 I hope so... she shows up as her searching character, <laughs> which is, like, spoiler alert, the most obvious villain you've ever seen in a movie. That movie's terrible. I um, just dread Deborah Messing tweeting about whatever this movie ends up being about. Um, I don't know. Like, that trio of actresses really sort of grabbed, grabbed my attention. And it's just like, you just know that all three of them are not going to get to do you know, a, a, a fraction of what Carell is going to get to do in this movie, and it's too bad. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what else does he have coming up as I go through his IMDb? I think that's it. Oh, yeah, that is kind of it. Minions, The Rise of Gru. Okay. A TV series called Space Force. All right. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, what else do we want to talk about in relation to Welcome to Marwen? I would mention... That because this episode will be coming around around the week of like the Oscar shortlist of all of the because they do it all the like 
you know, international film, the songs, the visual effects, the shortlist all come out at the same time now. Well, and in this welcome to maddeningly condensed Oscar season where we're getting a Globes nominations on Monday and then SAG on Wednesday, like mother effer. Yeah, my brain's kind of gonna be goo by the end of. Uh, I wonder if that'll mean there is more overlap than usual, or less. Like because, well, maybe because like the voting times will all be similar, right? So we will. It'll really maybe it'll either one of two things are going to happen this year. It's going to be, and of course, like egg will be on my face. Oh, it'll be a weird third thing entirely. you never thought of. Yeah, uh, exactly. It, it'll be like there'll be more consensus than normal, right. or it'll really kind of define the differences between these voting bodies that are all. It's going to be Voting like at the same time and you see what their tastes and their perspectives It's going to be like the newlywed game where we each we blindfolded the Golden Globes and we blindfolded the SAG. We blindfolded the Hollywood Foreign Press and we blindfolded the SAG nominating committee and we put them in separate rooms and we asked them the same questions. And now next week as we're talk as we're recording this next week, as you're listening to this it'll be last week. Um is when they both come back out and reveal their answers to each other and we see if they're matches or not. And it's just like, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) And what I think will be especially interesting is the sort of left field choices and where they come from. I am, I have been convinced for weeks that the Globes are going to nominate Meryl Streep for the laundromat and best actress in a comedy. And I see like all these predictions for the Globes and like Vanity Fair did theirs the other or yesterday and God bless again we bring up Katie Rich because we love her um, they're the most wonderfully optimistic picks for they they're predicting both Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein to be nominated for Booksmart which would like be amazing Constance Wu for Hustlers which I think is the one thing we can all agree on that's probably going to happen Aquafina for The Farewell and Ana de Armas for Knives Out and I'm just like that is the most I hope Ana de Armas happens at this point obviously the nominations will be out but like that I want that entire lineup to happen it's such a wonderfully like optimistic view of the world that that could happen and I'm just like this is the golden globe you say optimistic I say it is trusting the good taste that the globe sometimes has especially with comedy actress I agree with you in theory but I will also say that that happens twice out of every three years and I think I'm just bracing myself for Streep in the laundromat and Kate Blanchett and where did you go Bernadette and until that doesn't happen um, I'm, I'm in crash position but they're not pushing where'd you go Bernadette at all like I don't think it's even on their FYC website okay I mean again could be wrong the nominations will already be out there when this episode airs um I'm confused about the whole thing with the farewell because it's not best picture eligible because it's going to be in their foreign film category. But like, do we know for a fact that it's otherwise going to be in comedy? I'm trusting that that VF has the access and that uh, they know that yeah, they yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, they know yeah. better than me. But you're right that with the farewell and Parasite, both of those movies sort of like um, straddling genres. That because they're in foreign foreign, what do they call it at the Globes? Foreign. It's foreign language. It's foreign film language, Globes, film. right? Believe, because it's so. like that's the one. Because right? Because at the Globes, you can be like an American film. What was the Clint Eastwood? It was um, letters from you. Uh, letters from Arizona. Right, which was in that category. But because you're in that category, you can't be nominated in best picture drama or best picture comedy. So there's so they don't declare um, when I think it was 
deadline or something when they got the scoop on what the Hollywood foreign press was categorizing all the movies, they just listed mm-hmm. Parasite and, and The Farewell under foreign film. And it's just like, okay, but that doesn't help us in the acting categories. Anyway. Yeah, I hope that at this point we I hope out. that lineup happens. <laughs> yes, as we're speaking to you from the past and you're listening to us in the future. We hope that happened. <laughs> um, if it didn't, I don't know. What did I have? It would be very sad, and hopefully, otherwise, the lineup is really cool. I really hope that you are very wrong that Meryl Streep is not nominated for that abysmal. The one thing I will say is almost certainly Emma Thompson is going to get nominated for Late Night, so I think you are already yeah, have I to knock off one of those people. And But otherwise... I think the Booksmart call, obviously, I could be wrong. Again, again, again. I think Booksmart is maybe wishful thinking. I think that's possibly true. I also, and it's a movie... I would see it more likely to be a comedy Best Picture nominee than the acting nominees. Yes. I also will say, because it's the Golden Globes and we are expecting um, insanity, I want to go on the record and say that even though I have not watched the screener for it yet, I am bracing for a nomination for something from The Peanut Butter Falcon only because it's called the peanut butter falcon so it will really play into <laughs> that like morning of the nominations and everybody going what the fuck is the peanut butter falcon in the same way people went what the fuck is um the leisure seeker the leisure seeker or what was the ruffalo movie um that he got nominated for oh man uh infinite infinitely, infinitely polar, polar bear. bear it's like the Peanut Butter Falcon, tell me that's not the infinitely polar bear of this year. So if Dakota <laughs> Johnson gets nominated for the Peanut Butter Falcon, don't oh my don't God. say I didn't warn you. Uh, I, I love her, so I, and I have loved her. Well, we are in a very we're in a very pro Dakota Johnson place culturally at this point after she um sent Ellen into space never to return. Like I don't know what <laughs> happened in that moment. It was truly just I did invite you, Ellen. <laughs> Laser eyes. Like literally, all, I want someone to just like Ellen. I want someone to put that scene on where after she says I did invite you, Ellen, her like eyes just glow red and it's just like and she gets uh zapped like in Mars Attacks. <laughs> just something to really complete the visual of it. We love you, Dakota Johnson, and I want someone to have the little Mortal Kombat pop-up head <laughs> that does the toasty. That's what I want. <laughs> Make it happen, That's Internet. That's what I want. Yes. Okay. Um, um, and with comedy being so sort of like wild and woolly, we forget that like the drama actress category, however it has shaken out again by the time you guys are listening to this, um, everybody's in drama actress. Like all of a sudden... Even because, like at the Oscars, I'm just like, well, it's not that particularly strong of a Best Actress year, and all of a sudden now I'm just like, well, it kind of is if Best Actress in Drama at the Globes is like this eight women knockdown dragout where only five maybe are going to get nominated. Maybe they'll nominate more because yeah. they sometimes do that. But like, I know you've been riding the Helen Mirren surprise nomination for The Good Liar, but like, she's going to have to. <laughs> that is not. Happening. She's going to have to elbow her way out of uh, past some like real contenders. Where like. No, that's not going to happen. At this point, it's going to be tough for, like... It'd be more likely it's SAG. They like her more than the Globes. Yeah. Um, I think at this point, like, it's going to be tough for even, like, Alfre Woodard to get a nomination. And, like, that's... I don't know if that's ever going to be a movie that's really going to be embraced by the Globes on its way to... Like, I, I can predict that safely as an Oscar nomination without 
ever thinking that it's going to be a globe. I That's a agree. movie that, like, takes a lot of time to build steam for that, like, certain body, certain awards bodies are going to respect what that movie's doing and what Alfred Woodard is doing more than others. We'll see how I did, but I will just say I feel like my predictions in that category are Zellweger for Judy, Theron for Bombshell, Ronan for Little Women, Scarlett Johansson for Marriage Story, and Lupita for Us. Right? I would probably agree with that. Leaving Woodard out, leaving Cynthia Erivo out, leaving Helen Mirren out, leaving our beloved Elizabeth Moss. I think out. Cynthia Erivo could have it's a, possibility. a surprise chance It's a possibility. There. I think the one who's probably vulnerable, honestly, is Saoirse. I, that's one I feel like I think she's weirdly more vulnerable at the Oscars than she is at the Globes. I have My feeling is the Golden Globes are Little Women's last stand. If Little Women is going to be a legit contender this year, it's going to have to get, like, picture, actress, supporting actress, screenplay at You don't think that could be a big SAG play? Not if... No. Um, They've been doing a lot of SAG Q&As. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I truly hope so. But, uh, I don't know. I feel like this is one of those, like... I was hoping and I was expecting it to be in the race. And then all of a sudden I find out at the goal. This is my worry with Jennifer Lopez as well, which I've been tweeting about all week this week, which is I'm really, really afraid Jennifer Lopez is going to not show up here. And all of a sudden we find out that she's Matthew McConaughey and magic Mike. She's um, on a totally different level, but like Diane Keaton in family stone where we were all just like, Oh yeah, definitely. She's going to get nominated for supporting. Like she, she, she might not win, but she'll definitely get nominated. And then all of a sudden it's just like, that's definitely going to happen to one of the male actors this year. Like I can totally see that for like Willem Dafoe or Al Pacino or where it's like, we just expect it because of all of these reasons that make perfect sense. Right. And like, they're just not. A right. Thing. Yeah. It's, but like the thing where like, Supporting actress, you feel like it's not deep enough of a category that Lopez could miss. But, like, if all of a sudden Kathy Bates is a contender for Richard Jewell, like, in that universe, all of a sudden it's... Not uh, for Kathy Bates, to be... Laura Dern for Marriage Story, Florence Pugh for Little Women. We all sort of assume that it's going to be both of those. If Scarlett gets in for Jojo Rabbit, which, at the very least, the Golden Globes like nominating actress and actresses twice, so mm-hmm. that seems likely. And they've nominated her a bunch. Margot Robbie for Bombshell or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. One of those two, I think, is... That's the question for me of which two... Yes. That'll be... Right. Um, but... She's certainly a contender. And then you throw in Kathy Bates. That's five. That is a very plausible five. That's not even getting into Maggie Smith or Annette Benning for the report. So, like, all of a sudden, this idea that, like, oh, Jennifer Lopez, because she's a star, the Golden Globes, who are star fuckers, will go for her. I'm like, that's not necessarily the case. Like, I'm hoping it is. And by the time you guys are listening to this, I may sound... So much press. I may sound like a paranoid, like, tinfoil hat <laughs> raving on the street handing out pamphlets and i hope that i do no like, i hope that i do i think your your fear is warranted because like we've 
there have been those situations, especially in the past couple years, where it's like truly a thing that has only existed on the internet. I just think the signs are there enough. I just to listen to people not be concerned about Jennifer. Lopez. I listen to people talk about hustlers, and the like completely past. Yeah, people are stupid. The past tense way they discuss that movie. That like, oh, we're talking about that movie. That's not an awards movie. Like, there's a real. Um, I don't want to say bias, but there's a real dismissal of hustlers in general that I'm really, really worried is going to touch Jennifer Lopez. I I worry that maybe that movie arrived too early, too. Yeah. Like, you talk about the past tense thing, that it's like, when that movie was out and happening, like, that's probably when the most serious conversation about it was happening and when people were, like, considering it more deeply like more than Jennifer Lopez and now it just feels like the movie is forgotten already. I just think it's a, it's a genre bias and it is a it's a dismissal of what it does well as being worthwhile. You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. it's oh, it's it's about women and it's fun it is... and it's exhilarating and it's about, you know, and it's like half comedic and half dramatic and like all of this stuff. Yeah. Anyway, it's a really like nuanced human story rather than yeah. like about these big sweeping thing. Yeah. All right. Let's finish up Marwin call or Marwin. <laughs> I'm trying to go back into my so notes. The thing you that I brought it. up about Marwin yes. is it is on the most like uh, this is the episode of chaos because this is the most chaotic, like cringy visual effects shortlist. It was on like the 10 bake-off of visual effects contenders. Right. So, like, it did actually stay in the conversation for a long time. Like, were you one of the people predicting Welcome to Marwin for, like, that final visual effects nomination? I was... Partly because... Let me read this list, because, like, this list is legit not very good. It is. It was Ant-Man and the Wasp, Infinity War, Black Panther, Christopher Robin, First Man, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, (laughs) Mary Poppins Returns, Ready Player One, and Solo. A lot of people were still predicting Welcome to Morrowind to be a nominee. Yeah, I I just remember, I don't remember specifically about um, predictions, but I do remember actively having the thought on nomination morning of seeing that Marwin was not nominated for visual effects and being like, I don't have to see Welcome to Marwin in my run-up uh-huh. to the Oscars, and I remember being Well, because you and I are people who like to see literally Every everything single thing. that's nominated, yeah. and I remember being like, oh crap, Welcome to Marwin lasted two weeks in theaters. I won't be able to probably see every nominee yeah. if it gets nominated. Yes. Yeah. I was really, I was really concerned, and also just the fact that like I'm gonna have to fucking see Marwin. Um, well, and I remember saying to you, yes, you will. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we will have to. Um, my one thing in my notes that I haven't gotten to yet was that Dandy Warhol's music drop really made me happy, and I had realized how I had missed the era where everything had a Dandy Warhol's music drop in it, and I was sort of transported, which was nice. There's some good soundtrack choices in this movie. Um, some obvious, like, obviously, like, the Robert Palmer Addicted to Love is, like, very on the nose when he's strutting down in Marwin with the five astride Barbie dolls that are his protectors. It's just like, all right, I see what you're going with there. (laughs) Um, I had to text somebody or I was talking to somebody. I was just like, what was the movie that had that Dandy Warhol's... No, wait, this was Bohemian Like You, but there was... I was talking to somebody else about, um... 
Every Day Should Be a Holiday, which is another Dandy Warhol song. And I was just like, what? Did they do We Used to Be Friends? Yes, they're the ones who did the Veronica Mars theme song, We Used to yeah, Be Friends. Yeah, 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 but yeah. another person, I think it was in his like Insta story. Let me look it up. Because I was just like, what trailer was this from? And he and he reminded me that it was The Holiday, which is very funny to oh, me. Yeah. But it also was like in the Dumb and Dumber trailer. Like It was like kind of in everything. And... And then, yeah, and then Bohemian Like You in this, which is like, that's the one song where it's just like, people maybe don't know it from the title, but it's the one that just goes, like, that's the only thing that people, it's sort of like how people only know um, song two from Blur that is played in like every arena now from, that it's just like, Mm -hmm. what is that song? And it's just like, it's the one that goes, and it's just the whole, the, that's the whole lyrics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like nobody knows the rest of it. So God bless the woohoo based songs of our cultural landscape what else do we got my one thing that i was like that's that we didn't need that the dolls are called glamonistas right that's the brand of yeah they're not barbie dolls they're glamonistas if that is true to life that there are glamonista dolls that that is a brand name. i don't think so i will eat my that sounds made up second of all you don't have to name if you can't say Barbie mm. for whatever legal reasons. Right. You don't need to name the. You dolls really don't. To just give me one more thing to throw my hands in the air with this movie. It was, and that was also Merritt Weaver who you know introduced that thing. But also, then they had like Leslie Mann's character be like, "I love glamonistas. I have them, whatever." And it's just like, all right, like calm down. <laughs> no, you don't. Um, calm down. All of this movie was Merritt essentially Weaver can sell me any bullshit. I swear. This to entire God. movie was me just being like justice for Roberta, justice for Merritt Weaver. I wanted a whole movie on her. I wanted so much for that character. I wanted her and Janelle, Janelle Monae's character to just like be friends and to just like go out on weekends and like see movies and you know talk about stuff, pass a Bechdel test, something. And this movie didn't give that to me. And you know what? That's not what this movie is about. But again, my thesis for Welcome to Marwen is that it would have been better as the women of Marwen. That is my that's where it boils down to for me. Yeah. It's it's a terrible movie. It's really bad. It's a really bad movie. It's okay. It's a psychotic movie for like no one. Like <laughs> I, I hate when people are like, who is this? Yeah, movie yeah, yeah, for? yeah, yeah. But like legit quite literally who is this movie for we've i think we've done a good job of intellectualizing the problems with this movie because that is a thing that we do on this podcast but i think ultimately watching this movie was not a fun experience it's just it's and not in a way where it's just like i am uncomfortable with you know serious and and sometimes uncomfortable uh and sad situations but just like there is a queasiness to the way things are portrayed in this movie that just makes it not fun to watch. And I think that is not unique to Zemeckis movies of this era. We're just like, I don't think The Walk is a fun movie to watch for different reasons. But like... Allied is incredibly boring and has no right to be. Right. Yeah. Like, it's... I think it's the rare bad Zemeckis movie that's just like, yeah, it's bad, but I'll watch it. Like, I do not want to watch Beowulf at all. I do not want to watch The Polar Express Ever. Do you know how hard it is to find to make a movie about Christmas that I don't want to watch? I'm the biggest sucker for that shit. I will not watch mm-hmm. the Polar Express. And the fact that like the Polar Express is barely about Christmas. The Polar the fact that the Polar Express is never on like I think it's it's probably you will probably be able to find it on television. But the fact that like all of the other Christmas movies of that era, that it's been surpassed by Love Actually as a Christmas movie, that it's been surpassed by The Family Stone as a Christmas movie, mm-hmm. is super telling. The Polar Express is always 
always like re-released in theaters and re-released in IMAX for whatever reason. Polar Express is the movie that I imagine everybody in Batman Forever is watching on Nygma Box. <laughs> where it's just like it's hypnotizing and brainwashing people like through lasers. That is the Polar Express to me. The fact that like <laughs> following Christmas specials as I do, but like ABC has had this series of specials called um prep and landing which by the way great title for your christmas special Fabulous. dummies um but it's about like i think like the elves like getting ready for santa to whatever who cares but like the fact that oh i know this kid's thing yeah yeah it's for yes it's for children yes Cute. as is the polar express you know what i mean but like um the fact that like these these tv stations these tv channels and networks networks that's a good word that i meant to use um mm-hmm are going to things like that or like Shrek the halls instead of just like getting the rights to the Polar Express and watching it was really telling of how much the Polar Express is really not fun to watch. It's the bleakest piece of Christmas trash you've ever seen. And it like, it tries to drag Tom Hanks down with it. And I hate it. I hate it for that reason. What a rough 2004 for Tom Hanks between this and the terminal. Yikes. Poor Thomas. We'll pray for you. Thomas is the one who is getting, <clears throat> who is my, a male actor that we are assuming will be nominated. Though at this point, we're not even assuming that he'll be nominated. Say those novenas. I will be very upset. Say those novenas for Tom, Tom Cruise, for Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. We've already, I've already. Justice for Mariel Heller. I mean, I've already given up that ghost. Yeah. I've already decided I'm just going to be angry about Mariel Heller for the next foreseeable future that we keep ignoring her fantastic fucking movies jerks all right um do we want to play the imdb game yeah do you want to explain the imdb game to our i listeners? love it every week we end our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other we give uh each other the names of an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that imdb has decided they are most known for known for is in capital letters because it is a thing if any of those titles are television or voiceover work we mention that up front it's only fair after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue clues are fun it helps us guess things correctly we don't like to be wrong it makes us sad it makes joe feel not smart don't make joe feel not smart if that's not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints because again aforementioned joe does not like to feel not smart so let us play the imdb game chris yeah who's going first um how about i give to you how about all right we are coming up on Christmas. I am in the Christmas spirit. I gave you one that I do not think is too difficult. Uh, we've talked about the filmography of Robert Zemeckis on this episode, the movie that this makes me think of the most in his filmography in terms of, like, why are we doing all of this crazy CGI in this, like, really hacky, uh, like, true life story? Also, based on a documentary, I am talking about Zewak, and I am talking for your IMDb game. Mr. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joey Gordy-Levitt. Love it. I miss... Where did you go? What? Where did oh, he go? Honestly. Um, remember how, like, certain we were going to be that he was the thing? Remember when he was going to spin he off is... the Batman franchise into his clunkily mentioned Robin character at the end of uh, Dark Knight Rises? I genuinely Refuse. really, really love Joseph Gordon-Levitt for all of his foibles and things that people find annoying about him that I can't necessarily deny. Um, 
I really, I've loved him since Brick, if not earlier, and I want him to reestablish himself as a major actor, because I really like him. Also, I think he's a really good actor. I always remember when everyone's like, he should be in a musical, and then he was on the Lady Gaga uh-huh. Muppet special, completely not on out of his out of his element yeah there was a moment where he like did a tap dance on saturday night live and everybody was like he's our next song and dance man and it's like absolutely we don't need that to happen um he'll be in next year's uh aaron sorkin chicago seven i know and like that is one of those like that's one of those things looming large. Two planets colliding, like in Melancholia, where it's just like, can the self-seriousness <laughs> and self-regard of Aaron Sorkin and Joseph Gordon-Levitt exist in each other's orbits? And I hope so, but like... Uh, with Eddie Redmayne? Right. With Eddie Redmayne. But like, Eddie Redmayne is not... Oh man, the cast. I don't feel like Eddie Redmayne has like uh, a pompousness to him, like the way that the other two do, right? Like, there's a little bit of like, if you got stuck in a corner with Sorkin and Joseph Gordon Levitt explaining shit to you, you would be there for three whole days. And I am kind of, you know, delaying and. and Eddie Redmayne time. might at least ask you a question. Oh, right. Yes, he would. He would. He'd stammer his way through it. It would take him, you know, a good 15 minutes to ask you the question, but it would definitely get asked. So what were we saying? Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. All right. I'm going to say this because I've seen this show up in other people's uh, known fours. Is 50-50 one of them? Yes, 50-50. Is The Dark Knight Rises one of them? It is not, thank God. Wild. Okay. All right. Okay. Is 500 Days of Summer one of them? No, it is not. All right. Give me years. Sorry. I thought I was giving you an easy one. Anyway, you get your years now. You have 2010, 2012, and 2013. 2010, 2012, and 2013. So it's not The Walk. The Walk is later than 2013. It is not The Walk. 2010, 12. That's so wild that it's not 500 Days of Summer. Um, is 2013 Don John? It is. Crazy. First of all, crazy. All right. Which is interesting because, like, the women in that movie are way better oh, than oh, I think he 2010 is, is Inception. It is Inception. That was the one you were thinking I was going to guess first, right? Mm, Not necessarily. I just thought you would get all of these. I thought you would be smarter than Um, this. (laughs) What's the one that I'm missing? (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. Uh, 2012. Okay. Well. I need to rewatch this. It would be weird if it was Lincoln, but it could be Lincoln. Is it Lincoln? It is not Lincoln. He's like 12. I know, I know, but it was a big movie. Um, 12, 12. Oh, Looper. It is Looper. 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 I just, there was a Saturday Night Live around that time where Bill Hader was playing, I want to say, who's the Democratic strategist who he played a bunch? Carville, James Carville. And it was around the time that Looper was released, and he was talking about it, and he kept saying, Looper. He would just be like in his weird like little accent. He would, and uh, it was stuck in my head. Anyway, it's not a funny joke. Fantastic. Not no. Don't say fantastic. It wasn't fantastic. Um, 
<laughs> do not patronize me. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never. I know, I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm angry that I had a bad joke. Okay, um, so I went, as I've mentioned several times in this episode. I love Merritt Weaver. Merritt Weaver also, as we are recording this, Marriage Story, Mawin Story, Mawin Story, is. Um, uh, you know what? Justice for Merritt Weaver in Marriage Story too. Like she's one of so the best good. things about that movie that, like, I hope at least gay people on the internet will recognize. The part in that, so this is on Netflix now. So of course, because I've already seen the movie, I immediately brought it up. And what did I do? I went right to the Sondheim scene, and then I went right back to the kitchen scene where Scarlett Johansson's trying to get her sister Merritt Weaver to deliver the divorce, to hand the divorce papers to Adam Driver, because Scarlett Johansson legally cannot do that herself. And the, like, the flusteredness, it's such a good scene, and it's those two actresses and then Julie Haggerty, who plays their mother, and the, like, interplay between all of them, it had that chaotic... Um, Mistress America, Best scene in the movie. Mistress America energy, where Besides they were all the in the in the house. My favorite part of Mistress America, that whole sequence, were in the house. Um, but there, it rounds to a point where Merritt Weaver finds out that her mother's been like chatting with one of her ex boyfriends for like years, and she's <laughs> just like, "Mom, you can't be friends with Jeff anymore." And it's just so, it's so good. Anyway. Via Merritt Weaver. I tweeted about this, but if you want to see the differences in Joe and I's conflict resolution, if we <laughs> roped into anybody's bullshit, watch that scene. Joe is entirely Merritt uh-huh. Weaver, and I am Julie Haggerty, where I'm like, I just don't see the problem in this. It's fine. Everybody can get along. And Joe is just like ducking in and out. I'm of just rooms. starting a million sentences and finishing none of them. It's it's truly something. It's right. It's correct. Okay, so via Merritt Weaver, I got to Noah Baumbach, who directs Marriage Story, obviously. And then, alright, so who from the Noah Baumbach collection of actors and actresses do I want to pick? And ultimately, I settled on who I thought should have been Oscar-nominated from his 2005 film The Squid and the Whale, who was Jeff Daniels. So he would have been my yes. winner in supporting actor that year. They were really pushing him in lead, which is dumb. I think they started lead and then transitioned to supporting. It was I It was know. weird. Did he get the Globe nomination for around. that and lead cuz I know Laura Linney did at the Globes and I remember like I think they both did. I don't think he got anything for supporting. Is the thing no, it was he was nominated for lead actor in a comedy or musical at the Globes for Squid and the Whale. He didn't get anything in supporting. He would have been. It's that's my like um, Jeff Bridges and Seabiscuit thing, where it's just like if you had just decided to push him in supporting, which he is, he would have maybe won the category. I don't think he's supporting a Squid and the Whale. I think it is. I think I think Laura Linney. I think is. Jeff. Di- I think that's Jesse Eisenberg's movie. I think it's both of them. Okay, well, anyway, let's argue about this later. I am going to, for now... <laughs> We're relitigating movies We truly are. ...that are not even on the podcast. All right. Um, um, we could do an episode on the movie. Um, we couldn't. Is there any TV? Because it was a screenplay nominee, wasn't it? Oh, uh, was it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't think... Wait. Uh, I forget. Anyway, <laughs> does Jeff Daniels have any TV? Jeff Daniels has... No TV, which is surprising because he is an Emmy winner and has been in multiple television shows. He got a bunch of nominations for The Squid and the Whale, so I'm going to err on the side of SEO and say, is Squid and the Whale on there? Yes, it is. Fantastic. Um, Dumb and Dumber? Yes. Okay. Well done. 
Jeff Bridges is difficult because he's in quite a bit of movies, but rarely ones that I think he's going to be at, like, the top of the cast list. Squid in the Whale was an Oscar nominee for screenplay, by the way. And that's one of the reasons why I guessed with him, because of that, and he's probably first billed in that movie. Uh, terms of Endearment? No. Incorrect. Mm. Strike one. Pleasantville. No, even though he should be because he's wonderful in that. Strike two. Okay, so now you get years. Your years are, oh, 20 years apart. 1985. Wait, 30 years apart. Uh, 1985 and 2015. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to try to get 85 first. So it would have been after Terms of Endearment. Yes. Is it something wild? It's not. That's probably right around that. You're right. We're probably right around that time, but it is not something wild. Is it Purple Rose of Cairo? It is Purple Rose of Cairo. The Purple Rose of Cairo. Woody Allen's film. Yes, it is weird. I mean, that's like, even for people who like Woody Allen movies, that's like very niche Woody Allen. It is niche Woody Allen. So he's like, he's probably first build in that or second build. Yeah. If not, yeah, if... (laughs) Let me yeah. look at the poster. Okay, so yeah. 2015. Oh, it's The Martian. He's second built to Mia Farrow, but yeah. It is not The Martian. Okay. But you're on, You're sort of on the right track. Mm. You're on the right track in a couple of ways, actually. Is it an Oscar nominee? It is. Is it a Best Picture nominee? It is not. Although, if I had any say about it, it would have been. Is it Steve Jobs? It is Steve Jobs. Get the- <laughs> Forgot about him because that's he's not anywhere near. He's the, the top one of the you list forget about in that, that it is. The first thing I always think about with Steve Jobs is fix it, fix it, Steve, or I quit. Um, yep. Fix it. What the? Fix it, Steve. Take it easy. Fix it, or I quit. How about that? I quit, and you never see me again. How about that? Congratulations in getting me to add that sound drop to yet another episode of this episode. You are welcome. <laughs> This is going to be, if you can get me to do this in every episode and you can find a way to do it organically, I think that should be our bit. By the way, I forgot to mention when I was doing Joseph Gordon-Levitt, another shout out to our wonderful friends at Blank Check. Uh, Griffin Newman does the best Joseph Gordon-Levitt impersonation in the world, and I would listen to it once a day if I could. Anyway. Yes, absolutely. Um, Good job on Jeff Daniels. Yeah, Steve Jobs... Jeff Daniels is absolutely the performance in that film you forget, even though he's like the fourth most important performance in that movie. He's probably... Is he in every act of the movie? Yeah, isn't he? I don't remember because Seth He might not be in the first act. He's definitely in the last two. Rogan's in all three. And Winslet's in all three. I should rewatch that movie. It's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. People really underrated it because of... The like it got um, social network backlash, not backlash, but like comparisons that it wasn't the social mm-hmm. network, and because it was originally, um, it was originally supposed to be. Was it originally supposed to be Fincher? Or it was not originally supposed to be. Boyle, it was right? supposed to be Fincher. It was yeah. in the Sony emails. I also feel yeah. like there's a certain thing about Danny Boyle that people feel like they shot their wad too quickly with Slumdog Millionaire, and that was probably right. Yeah, I think people are always a little bit harder on Danny Boyle than they probably should be. And also, the Sorkin thing where people... And I mean, I think, weirdly, Steve Jobs got the shit, the Sorkin blowback that I thought 
social networks should have gotten more of. Like, everything that people don't like about the way that Aaron Sorkin treats uh, technology and computers and geniuses and, uh, you know, difficult men is fully fucking present in the social network script. And you're lying mm-hmm. to yourselves if you don't think so. And it's just because you love David Fincher and you loved the social network and you don't want to go back and, like, reevaluate that you're not going to admit that. But, like, that is the truth. Like, in this era of, like, in this moment where we're doing best of decade stuff while you're ranking the social network as your number one movie of the decade, just remember that, like, Aaron Sorkin's screenplay is not perfect for that movie. And I will leave it at that. Wow. Yeah. I had a whole thing about that, didn't I? Okay. (laughs) I guess I'm done. I guess that's it. (laughs) Now that we've really... I fixed it, Steve. Apparently, that's what I do to fix it. And I won't have to quit. But for now... That is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you. Sure. You can find me on Twitter, railing apparently against the social network script, uh, at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd uh, under the name Joe Reed. Reed is also spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Twitter at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. Letterboxd under the same name. You can also find me writing regularly for the film experience. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility, so please make our diorama have us be tits out for you. Um... <laughs> with five stars covering our nibbles. Um, But that's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz and our mailbag episode. Woo! Bye. Nothing's what it seems Welcome to burlesque to the band. You may not be guilty, but you're ready to confess. Tell me what you need.